As we prepare to hear scripture read and proclaimed, let us pray. Holy and gracious God, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all our hearts be acceptable in your sight, for you are our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Our scripture lesson this morning comes from the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 13, verses 31 through 35 and 44 through 51. Jesus put before them another parable. The kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed that someone took and sowed in his field. It is the smallest of all the seeds, but when it has grown, it is the greatest of shrubs and becomes a tree, so that the birds of the air come and make nests in its branches. He told them another parable. The kingdom of heaven is like yeast that a woman took and mixed in with three measures of flour until all of it was leavened. Jesus told the crowds all these things in parables. Without a parable, he told them nothing. This was to fulfill what had been spoken through the prophet, I will open my mouth to speak in parables. I will proclaim what has been hidden from the foundation of the world. The kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field, which someone found and hid, then in his joy he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls. On finding one pearl of great value, he went and sold all that he had and bought it. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a net that was thrown into the sea and caught fish of every kind. When it was full, they drew it ashore, sat down, and put the good into baskets, but threw out the bad. So it will be at the end of the age. The angels will come out and separate the evil from the righteous and throw them into the furnace of fire, where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Have you understood all this? They answered, yes. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Jesus says the kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed, yeast, buried treasure, a costly pearl, and a fishnet. Do you understand? He asks his disciples, and they answer, yes. Now, maybe if we had been there, we would have given the same answer, if only because we didn't want the greatest teacher in the world to know that even though he had reduced the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God, to the simplest of terms, we were still helplessly, hopelessly confused. But I can't help but wish the disciples hadn't said yes. What I really wish is that they had the courage to say, no, Jesus, we don't understand. Please explain it because maybe then we would have a chance of understanding what Jesus meant when he said that the kingdom of heaven, the very presence and power of God, is like a mustard seed, yeast, buried treasure, a costly pearl, and a fishnet. Understand? Well, no, we don't. This past week, many of us have been struggling to understand, to comprehend, to make sense of what is happening in our city and in our nation. 
Some of us have reached out to friends or searched the internet for answers. Some of us have spent time in prayer or walking down Monument Avenue. Some of us have signed up to participate in a 21-day challenge committing to learn something every day for 21 days about race in America. Whatever we've done, all of us are trying to understand, to comprehend, to make sense of what is happening. And whatever means of understanding you've sought, it is a humbling process for many of us to discover that Issues of race have been in plain sight, and we simply haven't had eyes to see them clearly. A couple of years ago, a friend recommended to me a podcast series called Seeing White, produced by the Duke University Center for Documentary Studies. The producer and co-host, John Bewin, explains the premise of the series this way. The race beat in American journalism usually involves pointing our gaze and our cameras and microphones at people of color. That goes for me too, he says. I've told the stories of black folks, Latinos, Native Americans, but like most American reporters, I've usually left white people as a group unnamed. In Seeing White, we are turning the lens around Looking at the notion of whiteness itself, where did this idea come from? God? Nature? Or is it man-made? And if somebody manufactured the idea, why? For what purpose? How has the meaning of white changed over the centuries, and how does it function now? Bewin concludes with this question. The stories that we carry around about whiteness and what it means, stories we may not even know we're carrying, but we are, all of us, are those stories true? When something like this, like the concept of race, is so deeply intertwined in our experiences as a people and a nation, it can be really hard to pull back far enough to actually see all the ways that it influences us. This is what the Seeing White series tries to do. In a similar way, we must also pull back from the stories of the Bible when we seek to interpret them, because these stories come out of cultures very different from our own. So to see them, to interpret them, to understand them, we have to admit that there are things here we fail to see. Now, the mustard seed comparison seems clear enough. A mustard seed is something really tiny that turns into something huge. But it might help to know that back then, mustard seeds were considered a huge nuisance. They were so tiny that if you had a handful of seeds you were going to plant, there could be mustard seeds mixed in and you could easily overlook them. And then the plants they would become became huge, more like bushes or trees, as Jesus says. They were the worst kind of weed, big and persistent. So when Jesus says the kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed, he is comparing it to something like kudzu, an invasive species that takes over and even chokes off 
what gets in its way. And yeast? Well, when he talks about yeast, Jesus isn't talking about the little dried grains that come in a handy packet at the store, which can turn some flour and water and salt into a delicious loaf of bread. Back then, yeast, or leaven, came from setting aside a piece of bread and letting it spoil, letting it literally rot. Then this rotten, spoiled bit of bread would be added to the next loaf to leaven it. So when Jesus compares the kingdom of heaven to yeast, he is comparing it to something viewed as rotten or unclean. So when Jesus first compared the kingdom of heaven to a mustard seed, his audience pictured an invasive weed that would corrupt your entire garden. And when he said it's like yeast, they imagined moldy, rotten, leaven mixed into three measures of flour, which was enough to make a hundred loaves of bread, meaning that little bit of yeast corrupted all that flour so it couldn't be used for anything else. But Jesus doesn't just compare God's kingdom to substances seen as a nuisance. He also says it is like a treasure that's so valuable that a man in rather dishonest fashion buries it in a field and then buys that field so the treasure can be his. He says it's like a merchant. And back then, a merchant was today's equivalent of the worst kind of salesperson, someone who pesters you to buy something you really don't want. But when this merchant finds a pearl of great value, he gives up his whole business to acquire it. And finally, Jesus says the kingdom of heaven is like an indiscriminate fishnet, one that gathers up fish of every kind and quality and dumps them on the shore all together. With all of these comparisons, Jesus seems to be saying that the kingdom of heaven, the very power and presence of God, is not always what it appears to be. And that this kingdom is so intimately tied up with, enmeshed with our world, that sometimes it might be found in the last place we would ever think to look. We so desperately want the most important things in life, our relationships with family and friends, our our work, our society, our faith, our most deeply held beliefs. We want them to be black and white, either or, crystal clear. We so want to be able to tease apart the bad from the good, to figure out exactly what is from God and what is not. And we would really like it if that whole process could be as easy for us as it sounded like it was for the people in the fishnet parable to separate the good fish from the bad. But what if Jesus is telling us that if we really want to experience God here and now, then we have to take it all together, the good with the bad, and that in some strange way, what we think of or label as bad might just reveal what is good. What if it's when we find the courage to admit there are things we don't know? things we haven't understood, things we haven't seen clearly, it is then that we will find ourselves on the path to true transformation. 
With these parables that seem so simple at first glance but become more complicated the longer we look, Jesus is telling us the kingdom of God is all around us, but it is wrapped up in the messiness of our lives. And sometimes the clearest glimpses we get of that kingdom are when what we thought was a big weed coming up in the middle of our perfectly landscaped lawn becomes a habitat for songbirds. And when what we thought was a hunk of rotten bread that looks and smells disgusting turns out to be exactly what's needed to make the next loaf rise. And when the thief and the salesman are the ones who willingly shoulder the cost of a genuine encounter with God. Understand? Yes, answered the disciples, and maybe like us, they didn't understand exactly what Jesus meant when he compared God's kingdom to weeds and rotten bread and treasure and pearls and fishnets that capture the bad fish along with the good. But maybe what they were finally beginning to understand what these parables are asking us to understand is that God is here all around us in the paradoxes and the contradictions, the tragedies and the exaltations, the pain and the ecstasy of human life. It is all wrapped up together and God is in the midst of it all. In Durham, North Carolina, a group of citizens gathered together to work to improve the public schools in the midst of desegregation. The co-chairs of this group were C.P. Ellis and Ann Atwater. People in that town knew both of those names well because Ann was a black woman at the forefront of the civil rights movement and C.P. was a white man and the local head of the Ku Klux Klan. Despite her health problems, poverty, and life as a single mother, Ann Atwater was one of the strongest voices in the fight for equality. She was tough. C.P. Ellis lived in a shack just north of the tracks that separated poor white Durham from poor black Durham. He was just another mill worker until he found the Klan, where he was important and he could fight for something. When they first called Ann up to ask her to work with C.P., she quickly said, I won't work with that cracker, and slammed down the phone. She felt a mixture of rage and terror at the mention of C.P.'s name. But that night she couldn't sleep. She rocked on the porch and said, and something she still doesn't understand came over her. The next morning, in spite of her hatred and her fear, she changed her mind and agreed to work with C.P. But let's be clear, it wasn't easy for C.P. to work with Anne either. After he agreed to co-chair the committee with her, he got death threats, a lot of them, and his kids were beaten up on the playground. Still, the two persevered. They changed the schools, and eventually they changed the city. One night after a really difficult conversation, C.P. looked at Anne and realized that the worry lines in her face came from many of the same things that put the worry lines in his. He began to cry. And there sat the head of the Ku Klux Klan with Durham's most militant black leader, hand in hand, weeping, because they were finally able to see each other, not as one-dimensional objects to be hated or feared, but as fully formed human beings. 
In the end, both Anne and CP were ostracized from the communities they loved and helped. In the years after leaving the Klan and joining the civil rights movement, CP felt particularly vulnerable and alone. Looking back on this stage of his life, he observed, what an awful thing the truth is and how comforting a lie. In the end, the only God worth worshiping, the only savior worth following, is not one who makes God easy for us to understand or who protects us from things in life that are complicated and confusing and even painful to grapple with. The God we need, the God we long for, is the one who is right in the mess with us. One who draws alongside protesters and politicians and police officers alike. One who stands in solidarity with those demanding to be seen, who stands in compassion with those who are seeing clearly for the first time, and who stands in mercy with those who can't see at all. And a God who recognizes that each one of us can be found in each of those groups at one time or another. Fortunately, this is the God we have, at least according to Jesus, who says, God is like a persistent weed you can't get out of your garden, like that little bit of yeast that makes the whole loaf rise, like a cunning thief who does whatever it takes to steal our hearts, like an irritating salesman who won't take no for an answer, and like the strongest of fishing nets cast far and wide, a net that will capture us and bring us all good and bad and resistant and indifferent together into this complicated and messy and tragic and beautiful world God chooses to call home. Amen.